Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Oh, po- yeah, Posner. Posner? Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, for everyone watching, I'm pulling up the book right now. Here's the cover, Pharma Creed, Lies and the Poisoning of America by Mr. Gerald Posner. Which, thank you very much for coming on. And before I get into a tangent, I've been listening to my last couple episodes. And I realize I don't let the guest talk till like two minutes in. So I'm going to try to stop that. How about you introduce yourself first? Yeah, you know, as a matter of fact, um, I'm an investigative reporter and a author of 13 books. Uh, I do a lot of different subjects from Nazi war criminals to uh, Chinese gangs in the heroin business to books about presidential assassinations and 9-11, done books about Saudi Arabia and the finances of the Vatican. And then I spent the last five years on a book about the history of the American drug industry and investigative history. And it turns out to be a wild story as you might imagine you're the coolest dude ever man thanks for doing this i'm i'm 13 books yeah so i was gonna try to play it cool and if i you know if we hit it off i was gonna have to ask you afterwards but i'm clearly going early i would love to have you on i would love to do an episode for each of your books i will read them and study them and if you'd like obviously well we will uh, do it it. i look forward to it and i will tell you something so here's the thing you have to have tommy this is the only thing you have to have okay you have to have sort of an interest in different subjects because I'm unusual because a lot of writers who do a subject in a book and they let's say they do a subject about the CIA and intelligence business or they're doing it about politics or whatever else they stay in that field and then they keep doing variations of different books on it and what I like doing is doing you know and my my wife Trisha uh, also she works with me we do all the interviews together and she's an author too we pick a subject then we do a deep dive on it. We know nothing about it except, you know, what we've read. Yeah. And then we recreate the world from the ground up. And just at the point like now where I start to feel as though I have an expertise in the drug industry, I'm ready to move on Kick to something it. else about which I know nothing about. Hell yeah. That's what I love, man. That's what that's what I do with this podcast. It's I mean, I had on Charlie Duke who walked on the moon. And then I had on Juanita Broderick who was raped by bill clinton and then i had on a guy that flew air force drones and then i had on melissa avenese and a powerlifting coach in la and then yeah i've had on authors of sci-fi on monday i'm having on a girl that does fundraising for a 5013c we're going to talk about ufos it's that's exactly what i do man i can't yeah that's one of the things when you wrote to me and said you want to do a podcast and then i looked at uh, you know like your menu of who you had interviewed it was impossible to say okay here's the category this is what tommy does and he only does this because you do this wide variety and what's fantastic about that it depends on your personality i mean some people like to have the same thing sure. for breakfast every day for 40 years or something and some people like to to you know have a different uh, a choice and so yeah. I like to make it different, and you obviously do as well. And that's what makes, I think, uh, this type of work so interesting. You get bits of information about everything. Yeah. Well, let's let's jump on into it. So your book, which, as always, for everyone listening, it'll be the thumbnail, it'll be in the description, and it will be the top comment. It's, and I get them all in Audible, it is, it is scary. It is, it's, 
you know, it's always kind of like an edgy thing, right? You say when you're, I'm 30 now, you know, when you're 18, you know, it's, it's all this like edgy, you know, kind of angsty, like America is the biggest terrorist organization in the world, you know, big pharma, those are just drug dealers in white lab coats. But now listening to this book, it's like, oh, 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 they really are, they really are a cartel. <laughs> and it's like, with citations, and it's like, oh, okay, all edginess aside, you're like, oh, shit. Oh, shit, this is a cartel. So, but what's interesting about it, and you get this from now, from listening to the book, the it's an unusual, though, industry, because on the one hand, you've got people inside the laboratories who are actually working on yes. cures and therapies yes. and everything else, and sometimes they hit home runs, like on penicillin yeah. or um, on the polio vaccine, and then there's this disconnect because it's almost as though there are two industries. There's the laboratory and the scientist who are working. That's They're the guys in the white coats actually working on what they think is going to change history. And then once they come up with something that actually works, it goes over to the people in marketing and sales and promotion and the board of directors who are looking at the bottom line. And once you start to emphasize just the money and the profits, that's when it gets really Yes. Tricky and not so great. Yeah, that, and, and that that's a very important distinction we should make is, yes, it's not it's not that the scientists are just, you know, well-dressed drug dealers. I mean, these right. are these are brilliant organic chemists. They're going in and looking at enantiomers and flipping out one atom and doing the IR and atomic spectroscopy and seeing how it binds and the affinity and all this beautiful stuff. You're right, but then it kind of it gets to the same guys that are like, okay, cool, cool. Let, now let's take that price of that vial. What is that? Twelve dollars. That's cool. That's cool. I'm thinking one hundred nine thousand dollars, and it's just like, whoa, whoa, hold on. And there's really no bargaining room because it's like everyone that needs it's like I'm gonna die without it. So, and and you just said the important thing, which is interesting. So they look at twelve dollars and they say, hey, how about one hundred nine thousand? And you know, people who haven't read the book will think, oh, that doesn't really happen. But you know, it happens <laughs> yes, it in terms does. of pricing. And the amazing part is. We are the only country yeah. in the in the world. the uh, The U.S. is the only country that allows drug companies the unfettered pricing power. They can set whatever price they want. So, in every other country, there's some negotiation that goes on. There's some medical board. The government's involved, or whatever else. For instance, in Britain, you you have to go before the British and say, "Okay, I've got this new drug, and I'm charging five hundred thousand dollars a year for it." And the British will say, "Okay, show us that for this rare neurological condition that you're using it for treatment." That's going to save us, the government, money over the long-term yeah. care that would otherwise have to take place. And then they come up with all these charts that say, look, person with this condition is going to go in the hospital three times a year on average. You're going to live for another 30 years. It's going to cost you $2 million. So half a million is a bargain. If they can prove that, the government will approve it. But here in the U.S., we don't require that. You just say, I want to charge $500,000 a year for a specialized drug for a neurological syndrome, and you get to do it if the market bears it without proving that it's worth it. And that's why I do think we've we've allowed uh, the drug companies a little bit too much power. Yeah, yeah, and and I was I was torn, right? Because it's I mean I was I was pre med in college. I got into medical school in Miami, and like I was completely torn because part of me completely understood like the hustle, like. You know, I went to the number one party party school, but I never went to a football game. All I did was study. And part of me was like, I completely understand, like, the, dude, if you're going to put in the time, like, you, you got to be, you know, the only thing that drives me to that, sure, I want to help people. But, I mean, just call it what it is. I also, I also want a lot of money and be safe. And then on the flip side, it's like, you can't not volunteer at a hospital and shadow doctors and, you know, not go, man, I, like, I just can't wait to help people. 
Right. So it's so yeah. I think what you said is it, really interesting because drugs are at this unusual intersection of uh, public health and uh, profit. But I'm look. I'm a capitalist. I think yeah. that you know you work hard, you come up with innovation, and they are entitled to make a profit. So I'm not somebody who believes that there should be government control of healthcare or things like this. No, mm-hmm. I'm a believer that profit works. The problem is that sometimes there's price gouging, no question about it. Yeah. And they often, and you know this, is if they were, if you really come up with something that's innovative, you come up with a real cure or a treatment or something, you deserve to make big sure. money. But sure. sometimes what they're doing are what I call me too drugs, mm-hmm. copies of existing drugs by changing a couple of molecules. And really they come up with the same drug as a competitor. There's no benefit in terms of the therapy to the patient or the way it's delivered, but technically it's different enough so they can get a patent on it and charge a high price. So that's a ripoff. And the other part that drives me crazy with the drug industry is the repeated examples in which manufacturers, Pfizer, others, you know, big Johnson, Johnson, big companies will start to receive reports that there are problems in the field with their drugs yeah. as they start to figure out hundreds of thousands of doses, cases of increased cancer, possibly like there was with the, the contraceptive pill or hormone replacement for women, things like this. And instead of reporting that to the FDA, they sort of buried in the back room and hope it never becomes a big problem. And then 15 years later, by the time it becomes a Senate hearing, it turns out that thousands of people have gotten sick or been injured and they hid the information to make extra money. That's when it gets really, you know, makes my blood boil. Yeah, you're right. It's those, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I was gonna say, I remember learning about that OCHEM, yeah, chirality, handedness, where it's like, it's the only, it's the same, but it's different. It's, I mean, they do that with drugs. They originally made them for, I think, um, for narcolepsy, but they also gave them to the pilots of the B-2 stealth bomber when they'd fly from Langley to Baghdad and back and be awake for 80, 80 hours. And one of the originals was a uh, Olmophon or a Drafenil. And then when that patent ran out, made a little enantiomer, and then it was a uh, Modafinil. And then they made another, and then after 10 years, they made another one, Armodafinil. And then another one, Prodafinil. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, it's amazing. And, and you know, sometimes it's interesting. You mentioned that about the pilots. But, you know, I talk about like in World War II when they had this crash program for penicillin. Yeah. They were also looking at things like uh, benzedrine inhalers and uh-huh. others to see if they were able to keep pilots awake and more alert and people going to war. Then after the war, the companies using the benzedrine inhalers uh, were making a fortune because they had had all the benefit of government funding during the war. Yep. And after the war, they realized, hey, guess what? It's not just pilots who want to stay awake. It's Housewives. people working 12 hours at a desk job as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And, and uh, I had an author on it, and you would love it, uh, Norman Oler, his book Blitzed, about drugs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That is an insane book. But yeah. Yeah, there's that There's that weird kind of, or it's like only in America, right? And it's, again, I mean, I'm a capital, I love this country. But I mean, and I think because I love this country is why I'm so open to criticize it is with respect. I love this place. But it's only in America can you get that fat government funding. And it's like, thanks for picking up the bill, taxpayer. But now I have this patent. And, you know, it costs a lot of money to build this. And it's like, well, well where'd you get the money? And it's, right? It's so interesting you say that because that's part of the that's part of the issue right now with COVID. So, yeah. you know, we, have, we, the government, and it's us taxpayers because we're funding it, they have spent billions of dollars on different pharmaceutical companies to try to develop a vaccine. And they're all in the race for it. Now, in World War II, they brought in, they spent all this money, they brought in 10 pharmaceutical companies, government spent a fortune, they actually built the factories for these companies to have the output to, to make the penicillin. 
But the catch was in World War II, if you became part of this government effort and got all this funding, you got no right to sell penicillin under your own brand name exclusively. So you had to share the information with all your competitors. That drug, anybody could sell. And as a result, it was really cheap. Yeah. This time, there was no effort to sort of get the pharma companies to cooperate and also go ahead and, and keep prices reasonable. We just sort of gave them the money and then hope for the best uh, when they finally set the prices. And that seems to me to always be the worst case because the taxpayer gets screwed on both ends, provides the money for the research, and then ends up, the government ends up paying for the price, which is high for the vaccine. We won't pay. Yeah. Nobody in the public's gonna pay. There's no government, a Trump administration, a Biden administration, no government is going to make an American stand online in a few months and pay $5 for a vaccine against COVID. It's going to be technically free. Yeah. But of course, we will have paid for it. The government will have paid for it. Yeah. Yeah, and and then to circle back around, yeah, I don't want to forget it. Is yeah, by the time it becomes a, when some there's something like messed up, by the time it becomes a Senate hearing, not only are a ton of people dead and you know like the uh, flipper babies in the '60s, right? Not only that, but all the guys have they've taken their golden parachute, right? They've cashed in the stock options and oh man, sorry, yeah, I'll pay fifteen dollars settlement. Meanwhile, they took a cool eight hundred million to the bank, and it's like. It's like it's almost like fake news, right? Put it out there, and then as long as you issue the retraction, you're good. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's interesting because I uh, wrote an um, editorial in Newsweek a few weeks ago over the fact I was complaining about, and again, you know, I, everybody's entitled to profit, but I was complaining about the fact that some of the drug companies who are chasing therapies for COVID or vaccines have been issuing their reports on um, little incremental uh, moves forward, progress on the vaccines, almost like press reports. And then we find out afterwards that some company insiders have been selling stock based upon that. Now, there's nothing wrong if you're selling your stock, not on inside information, but on a public uh, press release. I get that. But it seems, you know, this is the type of thing that just makes people a little bit uncomfortable. It doesn't quite seem right because yeah. we don't have a vaccine yet. It's all yeah. smoke and mirrors. It's all rumors. But that's what ends up happening and we're so desperate for a cure for COVID, uh, you know, people sometimes take advantage of it. I get it. You know what it, you know what it kind of feels like? And you, you would know this, a, a man of many disciplines. It kind of feels like that um, for those that read this kind of geeky stuff like us. Right after 9-11, or you could even say right after Sputnik. That sort of fear is here. Uncle Sam's opening up the wallet. And hey, you got an idea? It's funded. You want to put lasers in space to stop the Soviets? Funded. You want to tie bombs to trains and put them in Siberia? It's funded. You got it? It's funded. All the while, each funded is getting a little bit of profit margin. And we're kind of in that spot right after, you know, 9-11. It's yeah. bombs. You got it. You want a, a 747 with a laser on it? You got it. Right. Kind of in that the, spot and, right now. And, and what you said, Tommy, is really interesting because, okay, after Sputnik, you're right. They threw money at everything, but that was really a race for pride. Yeah. Okay, we were in this national race, we wanted to get it. 9-11 and COVID have an element that puts that on steroids, and that's fear. Mm. So once you have fear in, you know, after 9-11, I was living in New York at the time, I get it. Okay. We we're all worried about the next attack and when was it going to happen, and everything is changing, and security and TSA is developed and so everything gets money thrown at it. Now COVID has us afraid when do we get back to being normal again. So you add that fear element in and uh, you're often running in terms of the government funding. Yeah. And it's it is a runaway thing. So let's 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 see how open minded we can be. Let's try to flip it. Are there things that happen in the American pharmaceutical industry 
that can't happen anywhere else in the world because of that. And I don't mean in a bad way. Is there shit that gets done? Excuse my French. Is there shit that gets done because, hey, this isn't just a nice little let's do it with the government. It's I'm going to go get that, you know, Fifth Avenue penthouse. No, I think that for the most part, the government funding happens on things like this in the vaccine. But for the most part, there's no question that the profit incentive, which is a good one, is what keeps a lot of drug companies coming up with innovation. Yeah, uh, no doubt about that. Yeah. If you're working on a small biotech DNA gene splicing yeah. treatment for yeah. cancer that may revolutionize a particular form of cancer treatment, you know there's going to be billions of dollars a year in a revenue stream for you. And that's going to keep your stock propped up for a while. If you can get a new drug for cholesterol or diabetes or um, let's say uh, you know some type of a heart condition. I guarantee you, you're talking possibly, you've got a patent for 17 years, exclusive pricing power, talking billions of dollars in revenue. And so these drugs, when they do get through, part of that is driven is the idea of a commercial success. And that makes perfect sense. It's an incentive to them. Now, the other side of it, Tommy, is drug companies say all the time, oh, by the way, we need the high prices because that's what allows us to do the research for these great drugs that are in the pipeline. But they don't put it I back hate in. to be the guy who you know brings you down to reality. But you take the top ten drug companies and you look at the, the what they spend in terms of research and development. They spend more on promotion and yep. marketing and stock buybacks. Yeah. So I say to them, do a few less stock buybacks, and you can do all the research and development still to get the star drugs, and you can charge a little bit less and still make a good profit. Yeah, and that is the thing they do. Is yeah, we like. We're putting it back into, you know, we're putting it, you know, it's like if I, whenever I've made money on this podcast, which is few and far between, but it's like getting a new, which is too bright. I need to turn this thing off. This thing's hurting my eyes. But um, yeah, it's, you know, get a light or, or new microphone, right? Or, you know, what hard drive or it's just little things that makes the podcast incrementally better. It's not that I'm going out and buying, you know, a new pair of sneakers or headphones. Mm-hmm. But it seems like mm-hmm. that's what they're, and again, I'm torn because it's like, you know, I can't sit here and be like big government's crushing, you know, freedom, and then in the same breath be like big pharma's making too much. You know, it's it's a weird. Where do I stand? No, no, no. I I agree with you, and so that. But my view of it is, and I think that this is something you get by by reading the book. You know what? Okay, this is a strange thing. Decades ago, uh, Justice uh, William Douglas of the Supreme Court um, had said, and I'm going to mangle this quote a little bit. He said, but. I can't define pornography because they have these cases on pornography, but I know it when I see it. Yeah. All right. And that's very much the way I feel about the drug company excesses. I can't define it. I can't say to you, oh, they're only allowed to make 14% gross profit yeah. margins or they can't charge more than this. But I know it when I see examples of where they have just come in and gouged on an old drug that was useless and they've recycled it. And I also know that, for instance, when I'm looking at things like the opioid crisis, when I see one family run a privately owned company yeah. with Purdue Pharma and become a family worth 14 to $15 billion, according to Forbes, based on just the sales of their narcotic painkiller, when they sort of over-promoted it and knew all the time that it was lethal, that I know crosses the line. So my feeling is a bit like Justice Douglas and porn, you'll <laughs> know the bad behavior when you see it yeah. and uh, when something should be done. Yeah, and it's like causation and, you know, Correlation doesn't mean causation, but when you can just follow the graph of the of Purdue, not Purdue Chicken, Purdue Pharma, when you follow the graph, very important distinction: one makes chicken, the other makes oxycotton that kills people. <laughs> but um, is when when you follow the graph, it's it's kind of hard to 
ignore the rising in profit and rising in overdoses and it goes like that that's a little and, eerie and what's really interesting is you know so you it, and the people running the the founders of the company who bought it in the early 50s were were doctors they were doctor yeah. psychiatrists uh, one of their sons who ran the company afterwards was a doctor uh and so it's not as though they don't know the power of these drugs and they had sales techniques they had another doctor who they hired who came up with this idea called pseudo addiction now Tommy, if you and I sat around a table, had a couple of beers and came up with this, we'd laugh and say nobody would ever believe this. But yeah. pseudo addiction was the idea that if I'm a, I'm, I'm a Purdue salesperson, yeah. so I go off to you and I want to convince you or you're the doctor to write more scripts for OxyContin, which was our star drug. And you say to me, hey, you know, I'm getting some patients who seem to be addicted to this. And you were telling me it's not really that addictive. They seem to be behaving just like addicts, they they call me at the all hours of the night, and they're and they're banging on my door, and they're looking for more scripts. Pseudo addiction says, "Here's what the problem is: they aren't really addicted. They appear to be addicted. They have all the behavior of addicts, but it's fake addiction because what it is, you, the doctor, are under prescribing oxycontin to them. You're probably only giving them 20 or 40 milligram tablets. If you gave them 80 milligram, or at one point there were 160, you need to give them more." When they get more, that will cure their pain and take away the signs of addiction. So that's the most fantastic thing I've ever heard in the world. Tell doctors, don't worry about the addiction. It's not really true. The problem is you, you're not prescribing enough. It's one of the craziest theories <laughs> I ever heard, but it worked, believe it or not. It did, which is the most insane thing. It's like, no, you're just you're just upping the dose. You're just, you're not addicted. You just, I know you have a Red Bull every morning, but and it's not that you're building up a tolerance and your adenosine receptors. You just need two Red Bulls. Two Red Bulls. Oh, that's right. And, well, and at the, yeah. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. That's insane. But let's uh let's get away from the, the doom and gloom. And there are some parts of it that are kind of making me laugh. And it's like you can only – like you ever watch – I mean, actually, you're probably like me, right? Because, you know, a lot of interest. You ever watch those old, like, 1950s kind of, like – I like to watch them just like uh, they're doing little documentaries on nuclear tests or mm -hmm. the new fighter yeah. jets, right? And it's got that same voice. And it's like, out here, you know, jackass flats, the new fighter jet, you know, a bright aluminum. And you're like, okay. But they always have these kind of weird things that you catch on. They're like, look at all these men working hard. And they're like, just like they should. So the wife can raise the kids. And then they go back to the plane. And it's these weird little like subtle, almost like hypnotic and I don't think it's like a conscious hypnotic thing. It's just that was the era, right? It's mm -hmm. look how clean this is. Like even your wife can't clean your car that good. And it's like if you said that now, you'd be crucified. Yeah. That, it, a it, lot of drugs like that in your book. That's what's amazing. You know, it's like a flashback to yeah. the 50s and 60s. Yeah. And you think to yourself, wow, they were selling the most popular drugs <laughs> of the era. It's, there was a tranquilizer called Milltown. Yeah. And it was replaced by one called Librium. Uh, which yeah. is actually taken from the last uh, syllables of the word equilibrium. Yeah. And then the big monster was Valium. Yeah. Um, and Valium, people still know today, but for 15 years, Valium was the number one selling drug in the world. It's an unrivaled record. It made a fortune for Hoffman LaRoche, its, its creator. And the way they sold it was, that, as you know, they targeted women. So they said essentially, okay, women... They, they, they did these experiments at the Walter Reed uh, Army Hospital, and the experiments were with two monkeys. They would they would hook these monkeys up into a machine, and 
they would tie these electric wires mm-hmm. to their feet and zap them. Yeah. Then next to one of the monkeys, they put a lever. Now, monkeys are pretty smart. If that monkey started to operate the lever, it stopped the electric zaps to both of them. So after the experiment was over, they did this hundreds of times. They would do autopsies on the monkeys. And it turns out the one that was operating the lever, who they called the executive monkey, had to make the executive decisions, that had ulcers, it had calcification in the arteries, all types of deterioration in its organs. The non-executive monkey didn't have any of that, no ulcers, nothing else. So the marketing people who included the the family that now owns Purdue, the early founders of that, they were in drug sales. They said, guess what? The executive monkey, that's men. They have all the stress of going out and earning the income for the family. They've got to go out every day to work and look tough and never show any weakness. Yeah. The non-executive monkey, that's women. So they marketed these drugs like the tranquilizers, the benzodiazepines, the Valium and that to women, uh, to men saying, guess what? It will make you better at work. You won't get an ulcer. You'll be able to get a higher salary and be a better achiever inside the business. Yeah. And it marketed to women by saying you're hysterical and neurotic. You needed to do better housework and vacuum faster. There are literally ads that show women with Adderall vacuuming faster. It's an astonishing thing. And at a time when 95% of all doctors were men, it worked. Yeah. Yeah. It. It's absolutely insane, right? It's. <laughs> it's, it's, it's. It's hard to imagine, right, that a... Tell me, one of my favorite ads was an ad run wildly by Hoffman LaRoche that showed a woman, and she was supposed to be 35, and she was unhappy because she had been able, unable to find a husband. And she had been unable to find a husband that matched up to her father. And it shows a series of pictures supposedly through her life from a child on. And it shows her as lonely and neurotic and unhappy. So the solution for her is Valium. And when you look at that ad and you think to yourself, today, there would be 10,000 protesters in front of Hoffman LaRoche's um, you know, uh, headquarters saying yeah. this is the most sexist, yeah. stereotypical ad we've ever seen. You've got to be kidding. Yeah. And back then, no one said a peep and it worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it really is. It's like you can take this pill. So it's like instead of addressing like the root issue, like, you know, maybe you're not fulfilled. Maybe this isn't the guy for you. Maybe you should have gone and become a journalist, you know, or maybe maybe you just need to talk to your husband more. And you guys need more quality time. Instead, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, like buck up buttercup like take a volume and put a smile and then what do they always say at the end and also so you can take care of your husband's needs and it's like don't remember you are also just an orgasm outlet like don't forget that after you're finished putting the dishes away make sure you know make sure hubby gets a happy ending and it's just like smile and wave and it's like that's eerie the, you know, when you say smile and wave, one of my favorite things was the, I mean, Valium was the closest, but yeah. for a while, because it was viewed as a low side effect drug, but it turned out to have a lot more over time. But yeah. the, the holy grail for the drug industry was a so-called be happy pill, yeah. a drug that you could give to people who weren't sick. So you wouldn't have to come in and say, I'm depressed, yeah. I'm anxious, I'm worried about this, I have ADHD or whatever else. You would just come in and say, hey, I'm a healthy person but I'd like life to be a little bit better. And they'd be able to give you a pill that essentially made you feel a little bit happier about life. That was a home run because then everybody could take a prescription forever. They were never able to do it, obviously, but they tried. The closest are those mild tranquilizers, which, you know, come in waves at different times, but but that was it. Yeah, and they are crushingly addictive, like horribly addictive. but, But Tommy, what's fantastic is each generation is replaced by another one whose claim and fame is that it's less addictive and less yeah. problematic than the one before. And it turns out to be just as bad. So yeah. Milltown replaced by Librium. Librium turns out to be a, a whole new class of drugs and is addictive, replaced by Valium. 
And then Valium, after it's known to be addictive and have problems, guess what replaces it? Xanax. So Xanax, which is thought to be, oh, that'll be better because it's not nearly as problematic as Valium, turns out to be every bit as yeah. problematic. And then clonazepam, right? And yeah, and clonazepam, the, uh, all, of, all of the benzodiazepines. As a matter of fact, the, the uh, immigrant who had come in from Germany who works as a scientist at Hoffman La Roche, was the guy inside the lab who invented the whole class of benzodiazepines had Valium, Librium, and Clonopin, which they didn't put on the market for years because they didn't want to compete against each other. Good Lord in heaven. So I was thinking like, right, because it's always easy to look into the past and, you know, one, we can do it scientifically. One thirty. I got you 15 more minutes. You can always look at it scientifically, right? You can always, those idiots thought the world was flat, right? But we know we stand on their shoulders. One thing I've been trying to look at more for just like my own growth is like, I can look back and be like, those animals had slaves in the 1800s or like they didn't let women vote or, you know, they thought like black should be segregated. I always try to pause and I'm like, and so then I look at these drug ads, right? And I'm like, good Lord, those are, and then not even just sex, it's also bad for guys. It's like, no, you might have an ulcer. Like you, that might mean tone it down. Don't, what, what are we looking at now? that we can't see, right? Because we would like to think we can point it out so we're not these knuckle-dragging, culturally, mm-hmm. you know, stupid chimps. But I'm sure hey. there's something right now that we're not looking but, at. Hey, there's no question. I mean, first of all, it, it, I mean, it happens all the time. So, and what I mean by that is, I found this out in this book, and I talk about this. We yeah. go from one major crisis to another yeah. because what you just said, we don't realize we're in the new crisis until we get a little bit of the rearview mirror on us. Yeah. So for instance, in, in the 60s, it was definitely uh, Valium and into the 70s, that was the big problem. Also diet pills, uh, people, yeah. there were diet clinics all over the country. Thank Life you. Magazine sent out a really thin female reporter to go to 10 diet clinics and she left after one week with 1500 amphetamine pills. So it was a problem. <laughs> they were dispensing them all over. And remember, it's not just the drug companies who are the ones providing pills that can be abused. You have to have doctors, some of them, yeah. not all, but some of them who are over-prescribing, running pill mills, they're the ones in the white coats who are like legal drug dealers that are writing too many prescriptions. There has to be a lot of people cooperating. So then we saw this as a problem. Then we got into um, uh, what I call the opioids and the opioid crisis. Now you would think that came out in 1995, 1996 OxyContin. 25 years later, we're still talking about it even though we've realized the problems along the way. So when you ask the question, what are we experiencing now that we should be responding to? I would have said to you 10 years ago, opioids, and here we are still talking about it. What's next? Well, if I was a fortune teller and could tell that, it would be fantastic because we could stop it from happening. But I think that part of it may be the promise. We don't know where this will go in terms of cannabis because cannabis and CBDs and everything else are being offered as cure-alls for everything. Sort of what had happened in the early pharmaceutical days I talk about when cocaine and heroin and everything was legal. So you know what? There's no there's no free lunch here. Yeah. Whenever you end up going ahead and over hyping any drug, you're going to end up having people become dependent on it psychologically and sometimes physically or physiologically, and there will be problems with it. Yeah. Now, do you think that that might just be our mode of an advancement? Right. I'm trying to think of a. You know, it's kind of like yeah. civilizations rise and fall every like 250 to 500 years. But if you zoom out and then look at humanity just in general from like, you know, the Fertile Crescent until now, you can see the sort of leaps. 
Is that maybe this is just the mode yeah, of maybe. advancement? It, it, it might be the way, but you know, there are times I think. I mean, okay, when I think could it be done better at the time? Um, yeah, in this sense, okay. I take you back. Uh, the first uh, birth control pill comes out in 1960 mm-hmm. by a company called Serum. The, they, the company is hiding information that women are getting a higher degree of breast cancer and endometrial cancer and blood clots. It turns out that the estrogen levels in that pill were way too high, but they, they hid the, those reports. Same thing happened with hormone replacement for menopause. When that came out in the mid 70s, they had Senate hearings, people, there were official reports and the companies got fined. And this is the problem, Tommy. The drug companies have gotten accustomed to paying these billion dollar fines. It's the cost of doing business for them. Yeah. They make 20 billion on a drug, then they pay a billion yeah. and a half fine for having mismarketed or misbranded it. It's not so bad. Yeah. The only thing that would ever scare them is going to jail. Yeah. You send a drug exec to jail for something, they can't go to the country club any longer. They okay. can't just hang out with all their friends. So we don't do that very often. And I think that, you know, so long as you aren't really ever bringing criminal charges and you say to them, hey, you know what? We catch you eventually. We're going to have a Senate hearing. You're going to be really embarrassed. We're going to find the company. They say, ah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's like the salary cap and like the MLB. It's just a tax. Yeah, that's right. It's a tax. That's right. Red Sox, Yankees, that's just a tax. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're right. I, well, yeah, I wonder if it's, yeah, because that does, because yeah, it's not, it's not innocent. But, I, you know, I would hope to think that maybe it's like, let's say our bad thing, right? And then I'm completely guilty of it. When you said weed and CBD, I, my first thought was like, oh, come on, man. Like, But now I'm thinking, I'm like, but that's what it is. You never think, oh, this is it. Because if you did, but you'd be bringing you, it up. You wouldn't bring it up. But the thing is also, so it won't just be CBD because what will happen, happen, have to happen is you'll have to have drug companies take it get a patent on it for something you can't just walk into a store and buy. Mm-hmm. So it's going to take a prescription and they're going to come out with some enhanced some, CBD yeah. combined with an antibiotic, yeah. combined with a little bit yeah. of a benzodiazepine. And yeah. that combination is going to give you the ability to be smarter or more yeah. focused or whatever else. Yeah. yeah, you're right. It's going to be that. It's not going to, that's what I've always thought about like uh, psychedelics. Like I've done psychedelics four times in my life over the course of four years and they they helped me with depression enormously, like a, right. like a like a like a mushroom. Yeah, some mushrooms and like in nature by myself, very you know, going out with a purpose to, and it helped me a lot. And my always thought in this sort of like intense person I am, I was like, this needs to be legal. It needs to be everywhere. It's going to cure everyone's depression. Well, one, that's not true. That just worked for me. But two, I was like. What it's going to be is, is, oh, psilocybin? Oh, well, we can't patent that. Here's psilocybex, right? right? That's right. No, no, you're so right because what will happen is – so for years, the drug companies couldn't even do research in any of those because they were all controlled substances. So now they're doing research into a whole range of possibilities that could help, be helpful. But you're right. They will take some element of it because it's useless for them if they can't patent it. And look at – this was the big problem back in the 50s. They were worried. They they would sift through tons of soil looking – for soil that had antibiotic material, and then they would make an antibiotic out of it. And they were worried they couldn't patent that because it was a product of nature. They found it in the soil. Yeah. They finally got to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no, if you guys at drug companies can take a product of nature and you can turn it into a therapeutic in your lab that can be delivered like a pill or whatever else or a shot, you can get a patent on it. So they can patent those products of nature so long as they turn it into a medicine with a new name. Yeah, and it's... And that's one thing I've often like debated is like maybe that's the way it gets done because let's say and this is a bit of a pie in the sky idea but I've always thought like if you really want to change the world you know there would be something like 
you know, I don't even want to get into some self-righteous hippie rant, but I've always thought, like, if there was anything, it would be making psychedelics legal, not because it would change everyone, but maybe out of every 10,000 people that tried it, most people, it might, it might be a beautiful experience, it might be bad, but maybe you get an Elon Musk in there, or maybe you get a senator, right? So instead of doing cocaine off a prostitute's ass in D.C., maybe they try psilocybin one night, they're just grabbing a pill, right? It's cool, it's hip. And they try it, and they sit down, and they become one with nature, and they wake up the next morning, and they're like, I need to stop giving, like, you know, earmarks to the defense industry. I need to help my my very idyllic romantic idea, but I've often thought if anything could get it done, and how would it get done? Well, if you just pitch it like that, well, the powers that be aren't going to let it happen. Note 1960s, right? Free love movement doesn't really turn on to an in, drop out. No, they squash that. I've often thought, what would be the Trojan horse? It would be it would be poison the water supply. Let big pharma turn it into psilocybin, LSD plus, right? Me. Yeah, DMT light, and then only big pharma. When big pharma comes out with you, you know that it's really over. It's not going to cure the world. Yeah, I know, right? But that's what I thought. Is like maybe that will be the Trojan horse. They'll come out with it. It'll be on every street corner because hey, I don't have a prescription of Xanax, but if I really wanted to, I could probably have it by the end of the day. I mean, that's just Me. the truth. Me. I've often thought that, but it's a little little pie in the sky. <laughs> it's yeah, so. That's what I was thinking. And then it's also, you can kind of see how it goes backwards and backwards. Got you for six more minutes. Is you go back and look at those really old advertisements, and it's like, you know, is the baby crying? Give it laudanum. And it's like chloroform and heroin. And it's like, it's, um, you know, that's, Tommy, you said one of the, my favorite things of the book. I didn't think I was going to go back on the early history, but the stuff that starts, I mean, all the big drug companies get started around the time of the Civil War because yeah. this is big demand for morphine. But yeah. guess what? Everything is legal. So opium is legal. The uh, every type of cannabis, cocaine. They're competing on different mm-hmm. types of purity of cocaine. You were able to send a dollar fifteen to Sears and Roebuck, which was like the catalog that was the Amazon, Amazon of its day, yeah. and get a hypodermic needle and a pure amount of cocaine. <laughs> and and Bayer, the big the Bayer aspirin, the big pharmaceutical company, invented over a four year period aspirin and Tylenol, um, acetaminophen, and they invented barbiturates, the entire class, and they also came up with heroin yeah. as a cure. For morphine addiction, it comes from the German word Herosh. So all of this was being sold. Cops Baby Soother was the biggest selling drug of its day. And they used to look through the advertisements in newspapers for the listings of uh, women who had just given birth and then send them a free sample. It was one third um, uh, pure uh, you know, opium and uh, ended up killing babies, uh, but was a big seller. So it was a, a, what I call the cocaine cowboys days of the drug industry, the Wild West until it was banned uh, in the early part of the 20th century. Yeah, it really was like a pre-Cambrian explosion of just drugs. Because, right. yeah, it wasn't the guy that discovered, I think it was heroin. It wasn't, didn't he discover that and salicylic acid like within six months? Yeah, no, it was fantastic. So he discovered heroin and he discovered aspirin. Yeah. And um, the and so great. And by the way, as a footnote, I just love this. So Bayer discovers Tylenol, aspirin, heroin, and barbiturates. They was called phenobarbital was their brand within five years of each other. And the only one they didn't put on the market was Tylenol because their lab test showed it was too dangerous. But meanwhile, they put heroin and phenobarbital on. And this is a time when no prescriptions were required. You could be 16 or 18, depending on the state that you were in, walk in and buy it anywhere at all. No prescriptions, nothing required, everything sold over the counter. So when people say, hey, should we ever legalize drugs? I always say, well, you have to look. There was a 60-year period here in America where everything went, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. And I'm a big legalized, legalized proponent. 
But then part of me is like, well, we did do that actually, and what did it lead to? It looked, Nobody realizes. Yeah. Nobody realizes we did it. That's we, right. Yeah, we gave it a shot. It's like maybe, yeah. yeah. I don't think prohibition works, but maybe a wild west doesn't work either. Yeah. Maybe it's a it's that it's that tricky middle middle ground. The another line. This is completely random. I mean, I don't even you don't even need to comment on it. One thing that just made me like actually laugh out loud, not even LOL, but actually like <laughs> start chuckling was just one line, and it was like. I don't even remember the time, but it was like, you know, it was like something in Boston. It was like, you didn't even have to have an MD. You could just go put up doctor on your above your shop and people this, you could practice medicine. This is so great. <laughs> I, it's so crazy. It's hard. Like you say, there it's hard to imagine until 1900. There was no federal uniform laws for what doctor licensing was. Yeah. Some states didn't require you to take a test at all. So you could go ahead and be a doctor now. They didn't know a lot about medicine and what caused diseases and everything else. You didn't need to get a prescription from a doctor. But it is really amazing to think that that's right. You, you went to see a doctor, but they may or may not be also doing some plumbing work on the side in the evening. <laughs> you know what? That kind of gives me hope. That kind of gives me hope that, you know, it's almost you look at someone like Keith Richards and it's like he's still alive. I kind of look at humanity and it's like, how did we survive that? But we did. So maybe... I, this is how I was. I mean, I look at like the Cuban Missile Crisis. I look at nine eleven. I look at two thousand eight, and I'm like, we survived all of it. So right now, where it's like there's riots, a presidential election is up in the air. There's a pandemic. China's growing and exerting its force on the world. Part of me is like, hey man, we got past the whole ship chloroform to new mo- new mothers. Maybe we'll get through this. Maybe we'll slip by. Yeah, you never can see it at the time because it looks like it's overwhelming. It's this normal. one's different. You always yeah. see this one's different. different. There's so many reasons. But uh, when you do get past it, that's right. You sort of say, wow, yeah. the ability to survive human DNA to survive and move on and get past just about everything is pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah. World War Two. it's like we just ended dropping atomic bombs on the sovereign nation of Japan. And it's like we got through that. I've got you for one more minute. What is your favorite book what is your of your creation i just did pharma what's your favorite okay i i know this will sound like really odd to you but here's what happens for me when i get hooked on a new project i get totally involved i have blinders on so all i can think is pharma okay right here as a result my favorite book right now is pharma but if you would ask me what my favorite book was when i did the finance of the vatican i would have told you god's bankers or the kennedy assassination i would have told you case both because my head's into that subject doesn't mean that I like the books on the political assassinations on JFK and mm-hmm. Martin Luther King a lot. I like the story of money in the Vatican. I was raised a Catholic kid, and so okay. I understand how they operate as a church. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but uh, pharma is it for now, but talk to me down the road, and it'll be a new project. I don't know what that is. Well, if I can get you on a second time, and you don't have to answer that now. I don't want to put you on no, the spot. No, we'll do it. Okay. What, which, because I'm leaning a little more towards CIA right now. I'm feeling 9/11. Let's talk about 9/11. How the CIA and the FBI mucked up that investigation uh, beforehand. How things could have been different under the Clinton administration for eight years when Islamic terrorism was first coming up, and how a um, one of the fellows who's still down, an Islamic terrorist who's still at Guantanamo Bay, mm-hmm. the third-ranking member of Al Qaeda, we captured him, was. I believe giving information to the Saudis and the Pakistanis, our so-called allies before 9-11, and the CIA never followed up on any of that. So we want to talk about what is still called a simmering scandal. We should talk about why America slept. Hell yeah. Can I, I'll email, you don't need to choose right now. All right. Can I, can I loosely sometime in December? 
We'll do it in December. For, uh, same thing, in and out, yeah. 45 minutes. But I know you've got it. You've got it. two o'clock, so I'll let you go. Okay. Mr. Jalen no. Posner, author of Pharma, amazing, description, top link, bio, all that good stuff, highly recommend it. I wouldn't recommend it if I didn't like it. It's my podcast, so it's genuine. I legitimately enjoy it. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. All right, my man. Peace. Thank you. Peace. Uh, thanks.